You've got to execute in the short term and you've got to dream. And those things can be in a horrible conflict sometimes in business. And as a leader, you got to figure out how to do both. And so I do think if you have a vision and you've got a direction, the best thing you can do each day is to do your best in executing that day's work against that vision, right? Because if you don't take care of the days, you're never going to get to that long term. That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high-achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. Sean Moriarty is the CEO of Leaf Group. Leaf Group is a major media company that operates online brands and marketplace brands. In the Leaf Group portfolio, they have e-commerce platforms like Society6 and Saatchi Art, and publishing platforms such as Well and Good and Hunker. As the former CEO of Ticketmaster, Sean has a unique perspective about how he was able to blend content and commerce into a new type of media company. In June 2021, Leaf Group was acquired by Graham Holdings Company. Sean was recently recognized as one of the 50 best CEOs for women and one of the 50 best CEOs for diversity for Comparably's 2021 Company Awards. I started by asking Sean if he really knew that building businesses and companies was something that he would eventually excel at. To be candid, you know, I didn't really give it a thought. I, growing up in Western Mass, you know, my mom was a nurse. My dad was a, a career civil servant and really wasn't the lens at that time through which I looked at the world. But my mom and dad always ex- kind of pushed the importance of hard work in everything that you do. And I started working at a young age and I, you know, liked not only, um, you know, having a little bit of money in my pocket at the end of the day, but I liked learning new things and meeting people. And I really think it was that my parents stressing hard work, getting out there and understanding what it means to work. And then the rewards of meeting people and making progress and being rewarded for that progress, I think put me down that path. But I wasn't a kid who was thinking about the Forbes list or the stock exchange when I was a young kid. Well, you know, it's really interesting because your parents, they were, they were doing such good, right? As your mom's a nurse, your father's civil servant, really focused on community. And how has that impacted you? Because you went into the you know, private sector and, and business, but how would you say an upbringing with two parents like that, aside from the work ethic and hard work, has impacted you as a leader? Yeah, you know, I, I think that um, when you, my case, the example of my parents, and certainly, you know, my parents' friends, you know, most folks were uh, would working class to lower middle class folks all working for a living. And I think though, what I learned is really, you know, having regard for others and and supporting people. Um, you know, when you get into the business world, you know, business is bottom line oriented, but the way things get done are with teams of people who care about what they're doing and care about each other. And I think that example of of looking after people and really understanding that it really does take a team or a community to get things done, I think has been fundamental uh, to my learnings. And you also realize it's you're always working at it and you're never quite the leader that you want to be or even should be, but you can get it better by the day, by the week, by the month. Have you always... Has that always been part of your ethos of 
trying to get better day by day and really working on yourself? Yeah, it's it's a huge part of it. I mean, building a team, running a business, you know, there are so many factors beyond your control. And I think, you know, one of the things I realized pretty early is that there is a mountain of knowledge to learn, right? The, the beauty of business is that it's a lifelong pursuit in learning if you're curious. You know, I think the humbling part is every single day, if you're honest, you realize there's a lot more that you don't know than what you do know. Um, and what it takes to be a leader every day, the, the energy, treating people well, giving them your time, listening fully, you know, that's hard. And the more, I think as I've gotten older, your my self-awareness or capacity for self-assessment has improved, which is a good thing. The hard part is you realize, man, I got, there's a lot of things I got to get better at. You know, yesterday was not my best day. How do I do better tomorrow? And I think that's key to the journey. Yeah, I'm sure that's been a, a huge key to your success, as you know, our guests know. And from your career, it's been incredible just the places that you've gone and built and led. But let's go back to maybe the beginning. I don't know if it was the first stop, but talk about how you landed at City Search. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I had become, you know, very interested in what became the consumer internet, you know, in the, the early to mid nineties. And, um, you know, I'd come to, to California after grad school. My wife is, who's my girlfriend at the time was from the central coast and wanted to get back to the West coast. And I had always traveled easy and was mad about her. So, uh, <laughs> you know, went west. And, you know, I heard about City Search from a friend who was good enough to bring me on as a contract contractor, which led to a full-time role. And that was, you know, I think 25 years ago and been building consumer internet businesses and teams, you know, ever since. But I saw, you know, I just knew the world was going to change. I didn't know quite how, but it felt like being part of a startup at the beginning of something, you know, where hard work, vision, and the promise of the new, especially as, you know, someone in your mid-20s, that's going to be really, really powerful motivation. I'm, I'm super happy I started there. I worked with some amazing people, and I would say it was absolutely, it's been absolutely critical in my career since the formative years at City Search. Can you talk about that? You know, I, I hate to say it because I remember that time well, but some of our listeners don't. But can you explain like what that was like in the early to mid 90s, really with the start of the internet and just the opportunity it presented entrepreneurs? Sure. You know, so so I'd say a couple of things. You know, the one is just at the beginning of something new, you know, you can almost feel that it's more atmosphere than anything else, right? Because there's a ton of ambiguity and Everybody believes the dream, but what is the dream? What is the online world? What does the internet actually mean? And it's being made manifest before your eyes. I would say, you know, it feels again, you know, your first time in that environment too, I think is really, really intoxicating. You know, the world is going to change and you're there at the beginning and you're working on it. It's probably the way in many ways, a lot of young folks working, for example, in crypto right now, yeah. feel. we're at the very, very beginning of something. And there's a lot of uncertainty. There's skeptics, there's naysayers, there's big dreamers. People are hugely bullish or bearish, but people are building things underneath. And over the next 20 years, we'll see how this changes the world. And so I think I was you know, captivated by that. And I think working with really, really smart people at the beginning of something, and I think the benefit there is if you go into an established industry as a younger person, you don't have background, you don't have experience, right? You've got your intelligence, your work ethic, and 
the luck of where you land. Are you working with people who are supportive and help you and move you along? When you're at the beginning of something, it's a really level playing field. Yeah. Because even people who have been programming for decades may have spent no time at all online. And so you got to really start learning from the beginning. And so a lot of the early practitioners, you know, were self-taught. And that can be really, really exciting because the harder you work and the more creative you are, the more you get out of it. There's something really meritocratic about that building when no one knows exactly what they're doing. And it seems like just from those early days at City Search, as you look back, it sounds like such incredible leaders came out of that. Who were some of those people you were working with and and how did they affect you as the leader you are today? Yeah, you know, I, I was really, you know, really fortunate, you know, early in your career, if you're working with really good, smart people, it's to a certain extent, you're spoiled, right? Because you don't really have much to compare it to at that point in your life. But I would say that was hugely formative for a few reasons. You know, one, it was a really, really positive, high energy atmosphere. Two, it was loaded with smart, talented, ambitious people. But three, the leadership, even though everybody was relatively young, was really good. You know, it was a place where people knew they could mostly, you know, get a fair shake. Charles Kahn was our CEO who and was absolutely fantastic in raising money and driving, you know, kind of that that can-do culture. And, you know, Thomas Layton was the president and just really, really talented young guys at the time who went on to do great things. If I go through that group, you know, people who work there, John Foley, founder of Peloton, John Pleasance, multi-company CEO, including City Search and Ticketmaster, just really, really thoughtful people. The other thing I'd say, which is unusual about it, is business can be a place where friendships are made and lost and lots of them are lost. That core group of folks has, you know, kind of stayed together in a very kind of collegial, friendly way now for decades. It was a really special time, and I was really lucky to land there. Yeah, it's so incredible that you have stayed close with so many of those folks, and now you look back 25 years and so many of the incredible things, great things you all have done. So being there, being at the time at City Search. You start as a contractor, and then what happens? When when do you decide to leave, or what was the next step in your journey? Yeah, you know, I think what I learned at, at City Search was not only kind of the you know the, the kind of foundation and the infrastructure of the internet and building uh, platforms and products, but the importance of building teams. You know, and I had grown up, you know, playing team sports and I like people. And so the idea of getting a group of people together and really setting yourself to a big challenge was really appealing to me. And then seeing how important that was in business, right? The motivation, the inspiration, the collaboration. And so City Search, I rose through the product and technology ranks. And then shortly before we took the business public in the, I think it was probably December of 98, a long time ago now, you know, we had acquired uh, Ticketmaster.com that had been independently capitalized by by Ticketmaster Corp. And we took the combined uh, company public. And so I would say, you know, kind of late 99, early 2000, I became increasingly interested in that the Ticketmaster.com business, because we felt it was inevitable, right, that that business was going to move online. It had been dominant as an offline player, but really it was, it what it needed were a bunch of people who really understood the consumer internet. And we were in the very early days of it. And so I ultimately started working on the Ticketmaster.com business and led that for a bit. We, we 
effectively acquired, and this was under ultimately under Barry Diller's ownership, Ticketmaster Corp, the offline business, and put it all together. And then I spent a decade working at Ticketmaster, first running product and technology for the online business, then running the channel overall, and then ultimately running the Ticketmaster business from 2005 to 2009. What would you say, you know, you took me from City Search to CEO of, of Ticketmaster, right? And, and not only CEO, you took it at a time when you saw the changes going on in ticketing itself and consumer internet. It must have been incredible. But what was it that got you? What was it about you or the situation that got you from City Search as this contractor to CEO of Ticketmaster? An awful lot of luck, a fair amount of you know hard work, and also having a good understanding of the things that we thought were most critical for the business to be successful. I, I think on the luck part, that really, can, it's not just luck. It's working for people who believe in you and will give you a chance. And I was really, really fortunate. You know, I was working for, I'd worked with and ultimately for John Pleasance for a long period of time. He was the CEO of the business. He gave me increasing responsibility. So I learned more and more of the Ticketmaster business. I also learned a ton about the industry from Terry Barnes, who was our chairman, who had been at Ticketmaster for decades prior. Just an amazing and an understated leader, thoughtful, smart. Clients loved him. He knew how to talk to clients. He could do the math of deal economics in his head, not bring up numbers, but just create a deal where people on both sides of the table felt like they won without having to say a heck of a lot. And then ultimately, Barry Diller inside of IAC, who you know is known for giving young people opportunities to sink or swim in building businesses, gave me that opportunity. And I'll always be grateful for that. So the, if you're around people who will give you a chance, that is a huge part of leadership success. And then what you do with it is up to you. It's also up to timing and markets and everything else. But what I could control for was working really hard and having a vision for the business that was also aligned with where people were in a position to give me those new roles were as well. You know, I just felt like building out um, really robust platforms and providing great service to customers would drive that inevitable share shift. And that's really what we focused on in those innings. And then taking the business global and then ultimately moving into uh, the resale markets. Which was incredible thinking about Ticketmaster and reselling tickets. And you know, you think back to your time and when that started and it was almost looked upon or looked down upon as, as the world changed. How, how do you do you recall that that time period? And was that a difficult time for you making decisions? Well, I think that the decisions that you make can be contentious. And then the question is, are you comfortable making decisions that other people may disagree with? I've always been pretty comfortable with that. And then there's the difficulty in implementation, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when we talk about the, the resale markets, my view was, was pretty simple, which is we were in the business of selling tickets. And the goal is really to provide that experience to give consumers what they want for the events they want to go to in the most safe, efficient way possible. And so the distinction of the primary and secondary market from a consumer's perspective isn't really one that matters to them at all, providing they're getting a valid ticket and they think they're getting a fair price. Is it the first time I bought it or 15th? If I'm getting what I want and I think it's fairly priced, 
and I can trust the transaction, frankly, I don't care. So that was part of it. But we were an agent on behalf of a principal and our principals, sports team owners, rock promoters, venue owners, they cared deeply, right? So did the artists ultimately about, well, this is my show and this is what I think a ticket should cost. And so trying to mediate that in a way that keeps the money in the value chain, that provides consumers with the experience they want. And then doing something new is letting market drive the price. Is that scalping or you know, is that yield management? And I think it depends on your motive and how well it's done. But when you're at the beginning, there's a lot to fight through. We there, I think there were over half the states in the United States had anti-scalping laws in the books that prohibited yeah. sale above face. Yet millions and millions of tickets were being sold way above face, but in ways that were really difficult for consumers from a trust perspective and convenience perspective. But I think if you believe that that's the way the world is going and that you can not only profit from it, but you have the tools to enable that world to get there faster, if that's your vision, then everything else is just what it takes to get it done. Yeah. Well, I tell you from living through that, remembering it being on, on that side of the event experience ticketing business, you a hundred percent, you know, and you, it's easy to look back in hindsight, but without having gone that route or done that, I don't know if Ticketmaster would be around right today. It's just, sometimes it sounds like for you and you said it at the beginning that you don't have an issue with making a decision that might upset other people. Have you always had that kind of confidence within yourself? I think you get more confident as you get older and as you get more experience, but probably more confident in either your judgment itself, right? You kind of know if you wake up in the morning and you feel like you have a good understanding of something, making calls on that basis, your your quality of those calls improves over time. The other thing I think you get comfortable with is recognizing that sometimes calls need to be made in ambiguous situations and you might be wrong and that's okay too, but you got to make the call that you believe in most, right? Because ultimately you're going to own the outcome. And so you should certainly own the decision. The worst thing to do is make a call that runs contrary to what you believe. And then that goes wrong. You're doubly cursed because ultimately you own the outcome and you also own the misery of not trusting your gut or being influenced by pressures, which you know really shouldn't drive the decision. More from our guest, but first, a word from our sponsors. All founders know the importance of compliance for scaling their businesses. After founding three different businesses, compliance is still my most complex issue that takes way more time than I'd like. However, I recently found a solution to the dilemma of complex compliance processes, Leica. Leica makes the entire compliance process simple. Leica's platform builds and automates compliance for standards like SOC2 and HIPAA with hands-on expertise each step of the way. With Leica, businesses can pass security questionnaires from customers, adapt to newer regulations, and maintain all documents in one place. The platform's automations, workflows, and integrations make passing audits and minimizing risk easier than ever. And you don't have to worry about keeping up with new regulations. Every customer gets a dedicated compliance expert to help understand requirements, implement policies, and fulfill ongoing responsibilities. Leica is also the only compliance platform that offers everything in-house, from the tooling and expertise to the audits and monitoring. 
Leica is a turnkey experience. How Success Happen listeners get 20% off when you join. Visit payleica.com slash HSH to get their exclusive deal only for HSH listeners. That's lowercase payleica, H-E-Y-L-A-I-K-A dot com slash HSH to request a demo and get 20% off when you sign up with Leica. And we're back. I want to get you up to date in the time we have left and talk about Leaf Group because it's an incredible business and, and organization. And I just want you to give a little bit of background on, on the business, the company. There's a lot of well-known brands in there. And uh, if we could start there, tell us a little bit about it. So yeah, at, at Leaf Group, you know, diversified consumer internet business, you know, our focus is on building brands, lifestyle brands that consumers are passionate about in categories that we know and understand well that are poised for significant growth over the long haul. And the view is I've always been a huge believer in the power of brand. Ultimately, all sustainable profit in a business comes from competitive differentiation. And really competitive differentiation means you can do more better than the alternatives that the consumer has. And if you build that brand that people love and trust, you disproportionately can win if you stay true to what got you there, right? I think ultimately when people talk about building moats, you know, to, and I could go back to, you know, what Warren Buffett has popularized and talked about for a long time, people underestimate the moat that a very strong brand can create as long as it continues to be supported and nurtured. And so at Leaf Group, we're focused on building these digital first brands and high passion categories for that global customer, right? We focus on fitness and wellness and art and design really anchored on the home and to give people the brands and the tools so that they can kind of be met at a their point of passion by a business and a team that cares as much about it as they do. When you have so many you know, it's, it's obviously lifestyle. I love well and good. We actually had the founder on the show a while back. But um, when you talk about all of these lifestyle brands and, and pulling them all together and really different verticals, is that something that is hard to do and put them all together in one business as one? Yeah, I think most things that are really worthwhile are pretty, end up being pretty hard to do. Um, yeah, but but I think the, there's the, I would say, the industrial logic, which is if you own great consumer brands and you can operate them under one roof from a scale perspective, but with significant autonomy from a brand building and audience development and editorial voice perspective, every one of those brands has the opportunity to be bigger and stronger than it might be on its own, right? Because many of the things that are essential in building a consumer internet business, technology, content management, data science, acquisition and retention marketing, SEO strength, those can actually be scaled across brands, especially within consumer categories. Doing them extremely well is critical, particularly early for differentiation. And so, if you can build that, that platform and that core expertise, 
that can power multiple brands, but those brands are led by people who, you know, kind of live the brand every day. I think you end up getting the best of both worlds. And by the way, this is not anything new under the sun. If you think about the, in the print world, right? right. Your successful magazine publishers own titles and the business expertise, the corporate scale and the back office scale and efficiency allowed them to manage a house of brands that could be each individual band, brand could be loved and trusted. The business performance was stronger and better because effectively that industrial scale that was brought to bear for every title. And I believe the same thing is true in our world. That's an actually great reference point. Thinking back to big publishers, multiple titles, you're really, you know, not reinventing the wheel there, but you're, you're running that business in, in today's world. And speaking about today's world, how did the pandemic play out? Was, was, how did you deal with that with, with your business? I think the, uh, the knock on wood, and so far, you know, I think our team has done a very, very good job looking after one another and our and our partners and our clients. Some of it, I'd say, goes back to decision making. We had been working with doing, we've been doing remote work and distributed work in our business in some form or fashion for a while. And our business is most of our people are in New York or Los Angeles, both places where commutes can be awfully tough. So we were already doing the work to get even more distributed. And so it was fortuitous for us. It sounds fortuitous in relation to a pandemic sounds awful. You get the point. We had done a lot of work in an area which, which, which ended up being very helpful to us when the pandemic started. The first thing we did was we moved quickly to remote work. Like we didn't try to figure out, oh gosh, are there different ways we can navigate this? We see, you know what, everybody go home. We're going to figure it out when you're in the safety of your own home. And we did that in that early in that second week of March. The second thing we did was tell our people, look, we're going to operate in this mode indefinitely. No one needs to worry about going back to the office anytime soon. We'll go back to the office when we believe, based on what experts are telling us, we believe it's safe to do. We believe we have all the tools we need to at least operate and execute our present plan. We did an awful lot of reaching out to people. Our people team led by Jill Angel was just awesome in checking in on all of our folks. We had regular meetings, Zoom happy hours, things to keep people engaged. But you know, I'd say most importantly, we kept operating at the same business tempo remotely. So we kept our folks busy on the right stuff. And we constantly talked about what can we do more of, less of, like, gosh, long meetings are really tough on Zoom. If it needs to be 30 minutes, make it 15. Let's not schedule people back to back to back on Zoom. Let's do some things via call. And so I think we, we kind of embraced the ambiguity and said, first and foremost, we're going to keep our people safe and healthy. And then within that, we're going to every day commit ourselves to doing a better job of how we operate the business in this new world. And what I asked people early on to do was to be patient in recognizing that trying something doesn't mean we already decided it was a good idea and we're going to implement it, that every day we realize the, the kind of imperfect nature of how we were operating and we begin fresh each day trying to do things a little bit better than the day before. Now, you've been always a visionary in a lot of different ways. And from what you saw, where you started moving forward now, you know, you talked about back at City Search, you know, when you were mid-20s and the culture and the, the excitement. Moving forward in 
this environment where I don't know if anyone knows really what is going to happen with a hybrid workforce, how for you and Leaf Group, how are you going to ensure that this incredible culture only gets better? I don't know, but we will. I think, you know, when you're really not exactly sure of how the few, you know, we know we're going to be moving forward with this business. We know the world is going to, at some point, get back to whatever its new normal is, and people will be spending much more time in real life, right, with each other. So we know that's coming. We don't know exactly when. I was talking with uh, some of the folks on our team about this yesterday, which is one of the, I think, the benefits in the workplace that will come out of the pandemic is a lot of the um, reasons that people would not embrace remote work that proved to be invalid are now banished forever. And so now you start to think about what does a hybrid workplace look at? Like, it's not, are you in the office or out of the office? To me, the, 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 the most important question is, what's the right way for us to organize our teams and interact with each other to drive the best business outcomes and the strongest culture. And so you can start thinking about in real life or connected via Zoom or whatever descriptor you want to use, what are the right things to do in each place? And so it doesn't, like some people are looking at this and saying, well, we used to be five days in the office. Now it's going to be two or three. I think you're missing a huge opportunity if you think it's just that. Because what I'd say is, What's the best use of time for people if they're going to be in the same physical space? Probably not going back to what we were doing right. you know, 18 months ago. When people talk all the time about the serendipity of the water cooler, which I don't deny, but taking down 100,000 square feet and expecting people to be there two days a week or five days a week for nine hours or 10 hours at a clip, hoping that they bump into each other at the water cooler seems massively inefficient to me, Right. And so, so I think what people are saying is, look, when people are together in real life, there are things that come up that wouldn't have otherwise that proved to be valuable for a business. So then it becomes a question of how do you facilitate in real life interactions that will give you benefits that would be very difficult to achieve over Zoom or, Zoom or remotely and think about it open-ended in that way? Because then you might find that, you know, we're going to have people in the office every day, but it might be 20% of the team because one group is going to come in and they're going to spend 90 minutes brainstorming together in a room. And then they're going to go to lunch and they're going to hang out together. And that might be the way that you get breakthrough ideas that you, that are difficult to get remotely. And you build those bonds that only come when people are hanging out together. And that's one of the things I've talked about with the team, which is let's use this opportunity of starting at the beginning and embrace it, not just kind of go back to what we were before and then kind of iterate based on what we see other people doing. The wonderful thing about a new beginning is it's a grand experiment. Yeah. And it seems like that's how you played it from the beginning. You didn't wait for other people to say, this is what we're going to do. You went for it and goes back to, like you said, initially, just trusting your gut and going with that decision. And it's worked well for you. And I know you wouldn't outwardly talk about this, but I, I did want to ask you about, you've been recognized, Leaf Group, by a lot of these workplace, best places to work. And I just want, it's, it, it seems like you've always been ahead of the game in that respect. Can you just talk about some of the things that you guys have been recognized for? Yeah. So, so I think we've gotten several different awards for diversity yep. and um, for opportunities for women and 
you know, for I think workplace culture and perks. Yeah. I'm proud that the company has gotten those uh, awards, and I think it re- really reflects on our team and and the priorities and how hard we've worked to do the things we believe in. At the same time, it's you know living in a world where those awards is necessary. <laughs> you know, it shows you we got a lot you know a lot of work to do. You know, yeah. and and I think a lot of people are working in earnest in lots of companies to do better. But I, to me, the idea of kind of saying, well, where are we on a dimension that matters to us, and then where should we be? Once you do that, then you say, okay, well, let's do something about it and move forward. But I think that self-assessment, right? I'll go back to that. As a company, where are we in these areas? And where where do we think we should be? And it doesn't matter how we got there. And we don't need to you know, defend that past. You, frankly, you don't even need to spend too much time on it. What you really should be focused on is where are you today and where do you want to be tomorrow? Yeah. And for us, it's Ultimately, you know, we, our businesses and brands have global appeal, right? And if you're a global company in a consumer business, it certainly makes sense that the more your company reflects your customer base, the greater empathy and understanding and capacity to execute against those and understand the customer is going to be better. So most of this stuff, I think, is pretty obvious. Doing something about it is where it matters. You know, the other area where, you know, we worked really hard was on board diversity. We took what was an all-male board. And before we sold the company to Graham Holdings, we had four female directors and two directors of color. And that's really just constant effort, you know, and focus, but also knowing where you want to go. It sounds like with your businesses over the years and you've lived it how you told me you lived yourself trying to get better each day. It seems like that's a a constant theme in your personal life and business life. Yeah. You know, I think it's so, I think that notion when I was working, when I was running Ticketmaster inside of IAC and we we had our quarterly business meetings uh, that Barry would put together, you know, Jack Welch was, you know, an advisor to uh, the company, and so many of us were fortunate to to hear from Jack once a quarter. And one of the things that Jack talked about, right, the the real challenge of business leadership is that to survive, and you know, you've got to eat, you've got to survive, you've got to execute in the short term, and you've got to dream. And those things can be in horrible conflict sometimes in business. And as a leader, you got to figure out how to do both. And so I do think if you, you know, you have a vision and you've got a direction, the best thing you can do each day is to do your best in executing that day's work against that, that vision, right? Because if you don't take care of the days, you're never going to get to that long-term, you know, the idea we've got a great long-term strategy, but terrible short-term execution, right? You just don't get there. The other thing that happens is, you know, I think with that notion for improvement, it strips out a lot of the noise. You know, you can fool yourself in business pretty easily. Hope can become the strategy. You can fall in love with a dream. But, you know, the idea that you're almost starting fresh every day, I think it does keep you humble and it makes it a little easier for you to test some the reality of, okay, well, this is what we thought was going to happen. How are we doing today? Doesn't mean you should give up every time it gets difficult, but it forces you to really each day reassess where you are. Are we, are we really making progress? Are we executing at the level we need to? I, I don't think there's any way to fake it. It's a team sport and it's three yards in a cloud of dust, even to get to the grandest or the greatest place. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I love that thought. And I want to leave you one last question. 
you coming out mid twenties, city search, incredibly exciting time. World was changing. If you put yourself today, let's say you're that same kid right now, 25 years old, and uh, thinking about a career, how would you? What? Where would you be thinking? Where would you be focusing? The whole notion of being putting yourself in an environment where it's early with significant growth with really smart people. The notion of, and this may be true for other people, but certainly wasn't that you're going to know at 25 what your quote passion is. Some people may have it for sure. And they probably have a high degree of confidence they do. I think, you know, most people are, you know, if you're ambitious, what you're passionate about is improving and being recognized for your improvement as you go. And the best place for that to happen is in being early where there's growth, where you can work with smart people and you can contribute early to building something from the beginning. And regardless of, you know, that field of human endeavor, I think there's something about being there at the beginning where you get the adrenaline and the motivation, but you also have the impact. And there is a, there's a level playing field. If you're working hard, where you're trying to figure everything out, not terribly prescriptive when, with other people's lives, but no, I think they're early work hard and grow with it. I love that. And I think that's, that's so true. And, uh, I'll leave you on this. I, you've made incredible decisions, great decisions over the years. I have to say the one about listening to your wife and moving out to California, because today here on the East coast where you grew up, it's about 30 degrees. And what is it? November 6th or something. <laughs> that yeah. the best decision you made. <laughs> yeah. Although I'll tell you what, you know, you, when you, you grow up in, you know, in Western Mass and in New England, that's, that's, that, that's always home. But when you look out the window in Southern California and it's 75 degrees and sunny in November, you know, that has its charms too. So. Absolutely. Sean, appreciate coming on the show. Really a pleasure talking to you. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate the questions and the time. You got it. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share, please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman. that's R-O-B-E-R-T-T-U-C-H-M-A-N, or even send me a message on LinkedIn. How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business, or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine, No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.